Welcome to the To Your Bible, a custom designed to your Bible reading plan with a weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And so we are in week 10, and we uh, cut off last week right in the middle of all the plagues, or right after the seventh plague, and so we are picking up uh, right where we left off, mid-plagues, um, right at number eight, uh, which is the swarm of locust. Yeah, we all kind of know it's coming. So slow down a little bit and keep paying attention to what these plagues I, are before we jump into yeah, the exodus. I, I'm just ready for it to be done. But <laughs> but slow down. Yeah, think about it. And as you were reading through this past week, uh, what, what are things that were drawn out? And for us, I mean, the one of the things that I think becomes apparent between the eighth one and particularly into the ninth one is sort of like this descent into darkness. Like mm-hmm. the, the, the locusts are described as, as black or dark and covering the face of the earth at one point. And so, yeah, you just picture fields being black yeah. instead of having grain or whatever was growing. Yeah. And we see an identification of what really is the problem with Pharaoh uh, and, and sort of the humility issue uh, that is raised of, of, of his heart. Uh, not only is it being hardened and, and there's that whole conversation, but um, wh- what does it look like um, that, that Pharaoh really has a problem with pride uh, more than anything else in this process? Yeah. He's still trying to bargain with God and God, God is God. Yeah. He, he doesn't really bargain. And even when he's like, okay, you can go. We always know that that's not true. He seems to go back on it every time. Uh, and then the ninth plague, um, we get darkness. We, we mm-hmm. definitely see, um, pictures of like a reversal of creation that things are descending back into darkness which is really where we opened in genesis and so um we're going to see why that matters as the story keeps unfolding but um very much it's a supernatural darkness doesn't seem to afflict the israelites again um yeah and there's something really interesting so ra the sun god of the egyptians uh, they believe that he did battle in the darkness and when the sun rose it meant that he had won his battle. And so the sun not rising was a sign that God was overcoming this God. And then some other traditions or one place I read was that Pharaoh would go out into the Nile every morning and cause the sun to rise. And so this was a direct coming against uh, their belief in Pharaoh as God as well. Yeah. Yeah. Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh's got some plagues coming against him very directly in mm-hmm. nine and 10. Um, because by, by the 10th one, this is the first plague we get that doesn't have a reversal. This is uh, all the other ones. Like you can stop the frogs and you can turn the river back in the water. Um, but this one is final. It has a final sense of judgment to it. Um, and, uh, and, and even the statement around, um, Pharaoh's going to Pharaoh's going to respond to this in such a way that he's not just going to permit you to go, he is going to say get out. He wants uh to 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 the the Israelites to leave by the end of this. Right. And so this is when we move into them threatening the final plague, right? So yeah. we're talking about okay. What did I skip over one? Slightly. My bad. Uh, <laughs> so the final plague is threatened and all that Chris said is absolutely accurate. Um yeah. And, and so in the attack on the firstborn, this whole what is being threatened, I mean, it's an attack on Pharaoh himself. I mean, the lineage mm-hmm. of Pharaoh as the God man um, is going to be challenged. It goes through the firstborn and um, it becomes uh, a direct attack on him. Uh, and there's all sorts of interesting histories that, that tie into different pharaohs and what they did with their firstborn. And and so you can date this book a little bit maybe by those, but um, yeah, the death of the firstborn. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a couple things. Remember, because it's going to come up again later in Exodus, that the Egyptians gave Israel all their silver and gold. 
gold. Israel plundered the Egyptians before they prepared to go. Yep. Um, and also note that verse, the reason Pharaoh doesn't listen, the reason his heart is hardened. God says that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. God's whole plan is this, is to glorify himself even through his wrath. It's a hard thing for us to get where we are today. Yeah. God's perspective is certainly different. And so methods he used may not always make sense to us, but mm-hmm. um, have a purpose and a meaning to him. And then we get the Passover. Um, this is such an important moment that the Israelites even get a new calendar date, uh, which uh, as Christians, we understand that too. We, we date our years by uh, by a connection to Jesus. And so this is so vital to their calendar and, and who they are as a people that this is the new month. This is a new year uh, for them. Yeah. And they're instructed in how to do it and how to celebrate it at the same time. So we know this is a real hinge point in the life of Israel and in their identity as a people. Yeah. And, um, you, you definitely get, um, this idea that, that this, this sheep or goat, uh, cause it's actually the same word in Greek, uh, or in Hebrew, but, um, would be used as, um, as, uh, um, an atonement, uh, a, a substitute, um, that, that, um, that the, the death that needed to happen. And this is interesting in this section to begin with, uh, all the other sections, the curses came and the Israelites were just spared just because there wasn't anything they had to particularly do to not, uh, have the, the plague come upon them. But this one, um, God clearly gives them a, a task as if to say, look, this, this, my claim upon the firstborn is really upon all firstborns. Um, and, but you, my people, I am providing a way through the death of the substitute. Mm-hmm. I'm providing a way for death not to come upon your home or your family. And so, um, in so doing, there's there's definitely this idea of a substitute. There's definitely the idea of like God's really still claiming a firstborn, but um, doing so um, through um, through the substitute and and sort of the, the lamb instead of. Uh, the child. Yeah. And the plan here, don't forget, is that God was setting Israel free to come and worship him. He wasn't setting them free to do whatever they wanted or to worship themselves or to make up their own gods, but to worship Yahweh. Yeah. They knew his name, they knew his power, and they were being freed from slavery to the Egyptians to serve Yahweh. And then like the most important verse, I think in the midst of it, then the children of Israel went away and did so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, obedience actually happened and it's such a, it's such a, a good bit. thing yeah, Every at least, once in a while at least for this moment they they do what they're told and so um yeah and so the tenth plague happens the the destroyer comes um in and um the, the the sons die and as as i said the pharaoh's son dies a significant attack on the deity of pharaoh himself mm-hmm. um, and, and pharaoh finally sends him away but he's like super narcissistic in it because he's like, fine, get out of here. But can you still bless me? Yeah. yeah he just seems a, to really be such in a it for weird line. And, and I think that the picture that we're meant to see, uh, particularly because God calls Israel his firstborn, the Pharaoh would give God's, Pharaoh would not give God's own firstborn, Israel. And so God took Pharaoh's firstborn in the process. And so it's such an exchange kind of picture um, in what's happening here. And so they leave. There's an exodus. Yes, the, they plunder. They get a bunch of stuff, which they're going to need later when they start building things. Um, and let me just say this. When it comes to numbers, uh, particularly with crowds and stuff like that in scripture, it's a complicated conversation. Uh, if you start doing the math, it starts looking really fuzzy. Um, but um, sometimes those fuzzy numbers also help us really put the books and the dates and the context that they're supposed to be in. I actually 
find more solace in the fact that uh, sometimes the way they talk seems like hyperbole uh, because it matches the the way things were written at a certain time. And so um, if you start doing the math in your head as you read, if you're a nerd like me, um, don't freak out um, or email me. Ask me questions about it because I find the stuff super interesting. Um, yeah. So I just, within the Exodus, I want to read one verse and it says, verse 38 of chapter 12, a mixed multitude also went up with them. And let's remember that God is a God of the nations, that there were others, non-Israelites, who could go with them if they wanted to, if they wanted to serve Yahweh. Yeah, there's no telling how, if, how many Egyptians, because we definitely started getting the sense that Pharaoh was the problem and that some of the Egyptians yeah. seem to actually recognize that Yahweh um, was legit. And so um, did they, did some of them also do it or not? Uh, it's a great, great mm-hmm. part of the conversation. Uh, but then they get a Passover. Uh, so now they, they, they institute the Passover itself. Um, and it's important to know the, the term out of Egypt appears 56 times in scripture. And that's a lot of times for a phrase um, that this is such a crucial moment. This whole story is such a crucial piece throughout all the rest of scripture. But um, we get the institution of Passover and maybe it's tied into this crowd that has come. And, and um, God gives direct instructions saying like, look, you need the sign of a covenant to practice this. And so if you're going to be part of these people mm-hmm. that and celebrate the Passover, um, and, and you're an Egyptian or something like that, you need the sign of the covenant as well. Yeah. So, so they consecrate the firstborn. Yeah. I think it's just a reminder. Look, your children are still mine. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, I provided a, a, a Passover moments, but, um, they, they're still mine. So I, w- I want this ceremony, this consecration to, to remind them. And we don't know the details of what it looked like for them to consecrate, but um, yeah. And then they have this feast of unleavened bread, which sounds really similar to the Passover. <laughs> yeah. What's there's the all difference? sorts of theories um, around whether these two things were different originally. And then as this, as Exodus continued to come together, uh, cause I, I take, a bit of a supplementalist view, which is Moses certainly has his hand in the Exodus, but over time there's, there's been um, um, people led by the spirit to either add or, or, or connect the dots or do things like that um, throughout the book. And so um, there's a question of whether the feast of unleavened bread was a general festival or absolutely tied into the Passover to begin with. And eventually it does become part of the sensibilities of the Egyptians or the Israelites that they are the same things. And so, um, and we get phrases in there um, around like the words being written uh, in, in front of your, your, your eyes or um, those kind of phrasings around your forehead um, where eventually the, the, if particularly if you go to Israel, but um We'll see this in Matthew 23. Even there was a box that they would keep uh, the law uh, in their in, in a box right on their forehead in front of them. So they take this verse extremely literally. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, and so um, and there's some language around like child sacrifice, or at least it reads that way initially. It's like, um, but there's also some connection with redemption as well. So like uh, the best way, at least the tail end of that of that section towards verse 16 of um, that. It, if the firstborn was unacceptable to sacrifice an unclean animal or human, a substitute was offered to redeem the firstborn from God. If the firstborn was an animal, the substitute was a clean animal and the firstborn was a human, no substitute was money. And so um, there's all this way that sort of keeps heightening up this firstborn idea. Yeah. I ju- back to your comment about the boxes that the Pharisees would wear. I think the other thing worth noting about this passage, it said a couple of times, like a sign on your hand for a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. This is this moving into worship. God is 
a posture of the heart and also mm-hmm. of your actions. There's oh, yeah. thinking and doing and speech involved in all of it. So that's that's the heart of it. It's uh, not to attach a box to your forehead. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why I don't attach a box to your forehead. It's because of that next line of like, this is, is that the only issue. reason it's you like, don't attach a box uh, to your forehead? <laughs> yeah, it's not the most fashionable thing in the world. Um <laughs> So, uh, but then we get these pillars of cloud and fire, which if you remember Genesis, we've seen this picture before in some ways, uh, when Abraham has his sort of, um, covenant vision, um, we, we see God, uh, represented in, in fire and smoke there, which is the same here. We're going to see it again in the tabernacle. We're going to see it in the temple. Maybe Pentecost is a tie into that. Um, the, the new Testament, uh, it's, it's a, not quite as clear on the cloud and fire of, or smoke and fire, but, um, yeah. And so, and they come upon this Red Sea. Yeah. Um, so before that, I think, oh, yeah. you know, God led Israel a roundabout way through the wilderness and we'll read in first or chapter 14 why, but let's remember Israel was saved and delivered, but they weren't ready for everything that was to come yet. They weren't ready to tackle all these armies to move into Canaan. Um, their faith still needed to grow and their trust from God was incomplete. Uh, and I think this is similar to a God often early on in our faith will reveal himself to us in really miraculous ways. So we see him and feel him and can really attest to his presence. And then sometimes that will change and there will be deeper levels or different levels of faith that we're invited into where we have to trust the presence of God, even if we can't necessarily tangibly see it or feel it. Yeah. I mean, even the visuals of trust play out in the story. Like, Goshen is farmland and food and mm. the Israelites were saved because this whole place existed and, and they were saved into the desert. Right. And now That's they're cool. being led into no man's land for the most part. Um, and, and have to trust, have to trust that food and water and, and God's going to have to teach him some lessons there around his provision, his shepherding as a good shepherd would lead sheep to pastures and to fields and to water. Um, they have to figure out how to trust this new shepherd God uh, in the desert. That's really good. Yeah. Wilderness is, you, there's not a lot you can do to provide for yourself in the wilderness. <laughs> no, no. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll include a Google map shot of <laughs> the Sinai area because it's just brown and just brown rocky areas um and so that's that's what they're entering into and so uh, there's a little bit of hey we did have it better back then (laughs) right there was food to be had and there was crops to be grown um and so they're gonna struggle with that as they go and so they uh, end up at the red sea uh, which is really the sea of reeds so um we don't really know where this is there's a long world of scholarship about it there's like 20 different sites possible um it's probably not the Red Sea as we know it per se, but uh, because Hebrew it just says Reed Sea, it doesn't say red. So uh, we'll deal with that. Never. So um, <laughs> but they cross uh, this sea. The, the Israelites are grumbling. They're they're angry at Moses, which is a common theme. Um, and Moses basically kind of tells them to shut up. He's like, "Quit your complaining. Keep your mouth shut and trust God." It's almost like the the response here. Um, and, and God sort of challenges them to go. Um, he even says, like, why do you cry to me? Like, Just go. Like, trust me. Move forward. Um, and- yeah. And I think you may have mentioned this, like, three minutes ago. I can't remember. <laughs> uh, we start to see this recreation narrative. They... Um, to not get too graphic, they are... They go through a door of blood. It's like a birth canal. Yeah. And pass through water. Yeah. 
Yeah. So um, there's definitely some tie in to this whole new birth idea, which I think the New Testament writers absolutely pick up on. And even John in his interaction with Jesus uh, in John 3 um, speaks of new birth related to water and stuff like that. So um, I think there's absolutely a picture of this mm-hmm. new creation, new birth. And not only that, but like Genesis 1 pictures too of, yeah. of dry land coming out of water, all these sort of things are meant to be callbacks connections for the people of god to go oh i get what was happening there right so Um, keep that in mind as you read because we'll continue to point out some of these parallels to genesis one through three um and i think something else for some application is that each one of these israelites had different levels or measures of faith different amounts of trust in god but because they did it in community they all walked forward they all stepped and crossed the red sea and so no matter where you are with your faith whether you are having doubts and questions or you feel like you've never believed in god more do it in community We are not meant to walk through this life or explore our questions or doubts or grow in our faith without, like, we're not meant to do it independently. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then they break out in song, (laughs) because why not? Uh, And even language-wise, this is kind of one of our oldest language-wise texts in scripture, um, which it's true in songs. Like, we live in modern days, and um, we sing older hymns in Old English sometimes, and mm-hmm. so uh, songs sometimes preserve language differently than storytelling. And so, um, yeah, and so we have um, this the song break out. Uh, we get references of He Will Become My Salvation. We get a right-hand reference, which um, for them wouldn't have been connected to Jesus yet, certainly, but um, if you were a warrior and you were fighting, you would hold a shield in your left hand and like your sword, your attack, your, your, the thing you would actually battle with in your right. And so um, there's, there's a play up of God's right hand. Like that is the thing that moves. That is the thing that works and does what it does. Um, yeah. And, so. and I think we get a little bit more of a glimpse into Moses' heart and life here. You know, really early on when he was at the burning bush, he didn't know who he was. He didn't know who he belonged to. Was he Israelite? Was he Egyptian? Was he something else? And here he sings. He doesn't sing my father's God. He sings this is my God. I will praise him. And then he moves into praying his father's God. And yeah. so yep. he knows who he belongs to now. Yeah. Um, I, I do find it interesting. And I, 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 as you read through more of Exodus and as you read through some of the Psalms, you'll see language like who amongst the gods is like you and those sort of things. And um, I, I do wonder how monotheistic the, the, the Jews are versus um, what's called monolatrous people that, that think, there's only one God that deserves my worship or that I should worship, but that there are existing other gods in the world. Um, they, they, they certainly get to be monotheists over time. Um, but um, some of the language and even in the language in the song, it's like, okay, like wh- how, what do I make sense of these other gods? And they, these are people without much to go on. Um, they might have some of the stories from Genesis at this point um, as sort of their, the stories of their ancestors, but that's not a whole lot of information. And so we, we have the benefit of knowing all of the old and new Testament, but um, they are trying to figure out who God Mm -hmm. really is, what kind of God is Yahweh. And so um, we, we have to read some of their stories in that light. Like when we get to the golden calf, we have to understand like, what do they know? What do they don't know? And what is even normative for them? Mm -hmm. So and Miriam, the prophetess, breaks out in song too, um, which is great. All these beautiful parts of the story. So then they go three days-ish into the wilderness, but they can't drink the water because it's bitter. 
Yeah. Yeah. And the people are grumbling and, and there's a tree and somehow the tree makes the water not bitter and there's a statute and ordinance, but that's not totally defined. And so, um, it, it's a peculiar story and, and God is certainly testing. He's sort of testing, like, do you trust what I say? Do you trust the words? Um, and I think it's important also to remember the, the, the sequence here. God has redeemed them from slavery already. Um, God has brought them out of Egypt. Now he's going through the process of testing, of refining what does it look like to walk um, as my people and live as my people. And so I think we have to think of that sequence in that right way because I think the same thing is true as followers of Jesus. It's it's set free and now what does it look like to, to know, to walk as followers yeah, I think there's some symbolism in those numbers, too. They're given 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. Yeah. yeah. Those are some significant numbers that the we've seen tribes, so far. 12 tribes, 70, sometimes tied into community, leadership, completeness. There's there's um, a lot of those kind of pieces. Um, and I wonder, um, and this is me doing my own weird tangent, and I, I'm, I'm not sure if it's there, but I think it might be. So we're going to see this when we get to the tabernacle and as we keep reading these couple stories in the test. But we had... The, the smoke and fire before we get to the Red Sea. We have the Red Sea and the passing through the waters. We have um, uh, now a tree, this random tree that seems to provide salvation of some sort, or at least um, um, provides clean water. Uh, we're going to see the story of manna next where there's bread. Um, and then next week we're going to get to a story where um, there's a strike at the rock, but it's, it's definitely a, a story of God's presence. And so, as you're reading these, um, and if you know your tabernacle setup, and I know we're going to read there soon, there's like this sequence to it all of, of there's a, there's a altar where things are burnt and smoke. There's a water basin that's actually called the sea basin, S E A, like, um, where, where there's water you would have to cleanse with. And then there's a tree. As soon as you get inside the tent, there's a bread that sits there, um, as well, the show bread. Um, and then ultimately you'll get to God's presence itself. And so I, I wonder if this whole journey is this picture of, um, the tabernacle that we'll see as we go in the next couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. But I think that's really cool. And that's going to be fun to keep in mind as you read about the tabernacle in a couple of weeks as well. Yep. Uh, one other thing about this bitter water made sweet. Um, Israel had a scarcity mindset. They were afraid they were going to suffer and die again. And that's valid. I mean, they were coming the out of slavery. <laughs> and I mean, you think about it, they have a background. They've had a lot of traumatic experiences. And so they're not sure where their provision is going to come from. Um, but God and his patience provided them with what they needed but not until after they identified the need for it. Oftentimes we'll have circumstances that we will feel lack in and feel like God's not providing, uh, but it's in order for us to see that we need provision and we see God show up and provide for what we need. And so next time uh, you feel like there is something that you need that is not having your needs be met. I didn't say that right, but you know what I mean? Um, (laughs) Pray to God and trust him to provide and thank him for allowing you to see the way that he provides for us. Yeah. Um, and so we get this bread manna story. I always find it interesting that God always calls it bread of heaven, but the people are like, what is it? <laughs> so, uh, which is the word manna. It's simply like, what, what is this? We, we have no name for this. It's like, well, it's bread of heaven, just call it that. But, uh, for whatever reason, they always call it manna. Um, but God provides for them. God gives them food in the midst of their grumbling. I, I love that God's graciousness and is, is on display throughout all these stories. It's like mm-hmm. a grumbling, they're complaining about things, and God still provides for them. God still um, gives them the thing that that will bring them sustenance in the midst of their wandering. 
And if in so doing, I think God's enacting this picture of a shepherd. Um, this, I mean, this is the wilderness. This is where you actually go uh, with your sheep. And um, this is God showing them like, look, I, I will provide for you. You need to trust me. I will take you to, 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 to pastures and I will lead you to water, but you need to trust me to do that as your shepherd. You are my sheep and I am your shepherd. And so um, I think that's on display in some of these stories as well. Yeah. Um, they're supposed to keep an omer of manna and it's a jar with manna in it to remember God's provision for them. And I remember, I think it's in her book, Passion and Purity by Elizabeth Elliot, but she talked about having her own omer of manna where she would write down and record the times in the past that she had seen God provide for her. Uh, So think about doing that. I mean, I'm not saying you need to like make an omer. Uh, Well, that's like a weight, I guess, like make a jar and put that stuff in. Similar to an ephah. I mean, so... Yeah, yeah, that was my thought too. <laughs> Omer, Eva, whatever, whichever one you want to do. Um, but think back to the ways that God has provided for you so that, again, in those days where you feel like he's not there or you're not receiving his provision, you can look back and say, he's not forgotten me and he will not forget me now. Yeah. All right. I think that's it for the Old Testament. Uh, it's a hefty portion and a good amount of time, but let's get to the New Testament reading for this week. We get to Luke 15, which is like one of the most well-known quintessential chapters for Luke, uh, these multiple stories of lost things. Yeah, so remember that. Luke 15 is a chapter of the lost things. That'll yeah. help you later on. Yeah, it's it's a it's a chapter. It's one of those chapters where it's like, ah, oh, you should have that number in your mind. Um, so first, somebody lost a sheep. Well, let's think about context first. Who is Jesus talking to? Um, because um, the accusations from the Pharisees here come, why does he eat with sinners? And then he tells these stories. And so um, I think that, that matters of how we should interpret, how we should think about how mm-hmm. these stories are meant That's to be good. told. Um, because, yeah, he, he first talks about lost sheep. And um, why does he eat with sinners? Because God, who's who's supposed to be the, the the one in the story, goes after finds lost sheep. He, we have a God that 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 seeks that out, and not only that, the the center. And I would argue, and I'll put it in the show notes that that all three of the stories here um, are chiasmic. They they have a center point. The, the The celebration of the story is not just the finding of the sheep. It didn't end there. It ended, or it it included sort of a big central point of. There was a celebration when the sheep was brought back home. There was communal restoration at the sheep that is brought home. And I think that's just what Jesus is doing. Here's why I eat with sinners. Because it's a celebration of God's redeeming, reconciling work in people's lives from from the margins and people that have been dejected, that people are sinners. Like, I, I am welcoming sinners at my table. That is what the celebration is about. Um, mm. And to a bunch of Pharisees, that's like a mind blow that they don't totally understand. Well, and it's neat because the sinners are hearing that too and saying like, I'm not, I'm not forgotten. Yeah. I'm not left out. There's a place for me and there's celebration over me, more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. That's good news for them too. Though I do, I do think every now and then I'm like, um, so you found that sheep and then you had a celebration. So are you back down to 99, um, <laughs> to have your festival for, uh, but I don't know. <laughs> and so, but that's just a thought. Um, and then there's a parable of the lost coin, uh, which has a ton of parallels. I mean, there's, there's different actors in the story and, and coins instead. And there's some symbolism there, but the overall message is meant to be the same. So rejoicing mm-hmm. with the community. Yeah. There's a communal celebration like why would you invite friends over to celebrate that you lost a coin like other than to drive home that there's a communal celebration as part of this um and then the prodigal son story uh, why it's named that i don't totally know um 
because even as Keller points out in his book, like, yeah, it's like, it's about the prodigal God. It's about the God that, that, that goes the extra mile. That's spends lavishly. Yeah. And, um. and so, um, yeah, once again, uh, this story is told as sort of a downward spiral to an upward spiral. Um, and, um, in the first son in an honor and shame culture, this is like, uh, the storytelling of Jesus here is perfect because it is presenting like the worst of the worst. Mm. This is a guy, a, a son who is full on dishonored or dishonored his dad <clears throat> as if to say, dad, I wish you were dead. Just give me my money. Um, he ends up in a pagan land. He ends up working with pigs. Like you can't present somebody as low as this guy. And so when the Pharisees are hearing this story, they're probably like, well, when he comes back home, what's that dad going to do? Is he going to punish him? Is he going to drive him out? And he's going to shame him because of what he's done back. And we don't see that. We see mm-hmm. a dad even willing to represent shame by running uh, back to the son and not even right. asking him to to repent and to set things right. He's a father who so loves um, the restoration of his broken people. Yeah. And then we get to the second son, which I think is the question the left to on the, the Pharisees. Pharisees. Yeah, it's like, hey, you're watching me eat with sinners. You're watching this restoration. You're watching the father who goes after lost sheep go after lost sheep. Come party with us. Um, come be a part of this celebration. Um, and they're the ones on the outside. Frustrated. Yeah. So the challenge to us is don't get yourself together before you come to the Father and repent. And he will receive you and welcome you back with open arms. Um, and don't be stingy about offering grace to others. Even if it's an area where you don't struggle, offer it freely to others no matter what. And remember that you have been saved from the same wrath that yeah. that younger brother was saved from. Yeah. I mean, there is room to talk about obedience and things like that, but mm-hmm. so much more of what defines God's people is around c- celebrating God's graciousness in the midst of our brokenness. Um, and I think that's what Jesus is inviting the Pharisees into. And then there's a the dishonest manager, which honestly uh, is not one of my favorite stories. I think it's really peculiar um, because it feels like <clears throat> Jesus is sort of highlighting a dishonest person and um, in in sort of their dishonesty. Uh, and and the master praises him at least for some of his practices. And so <clears throat> I think what, what Luke does here, and he does it in other parables, um, at least one more that we deal with, is kind of present like a negative scenario. Uh, and say, look, even even the the sons of this world know how to invest in their future, know how to make things right, knowing what comes next. And so, <clears throat> how much more sons of heaven who have the wisdom of God, who understand the kingdom of God, not not the kingdom of this world, should know how to invest, how to how to use money, how to save treasures in heaven, know how to live towards the next life. Right. So he's not praising him for his dishonesty, but he is praising his shrewdness and his planning ahead, knowing that this guy's about to lose his job and he's got to have a backup plan. Um, And the same for us. We know what's coming next and we have to live towards the next life to come. Yeah. And it's it's practical. You can't serve two gods. Right. But it does require some work to understand what Jesus is communicating here. And that's not always a bad thing. Yeah. Well, and, and the constant theme in Luke around money and wealth and what we do with it. It's a pretty big deal. Yeah. Luke tells more parables and talks more about money and wealth than any of the other gospel writers. Yeah. 
And then we get this <clears throat> law in the kingdom section. Uh, Jesus kind of points out the Pharisees hypocrisy, the heart and action don't line up. Um, and, and then there's some weird phrasing. Um, and, and this is what I think is happening. Don't, don't, I'm not going to stake a claim too deeply in the ground on this, but um, I think this is what's happening. So the language of about the kingdom coming, the kingdom of God is proclaimed. And um, the, the phrasing is, is sort of everyone in or among it forces their way. And, and it's kind of vague. And, I think Matthew makes the section a little clear, but I, I think I think it's picking up on on Micah two twelve to thirteen. It says, "I will surely gather all of you, Jacob, and I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in this pasture." So this is messianic. Like this is what's going to happen when the Messiah comes, and the place will throng with people, and the one who breaks open the way will go up before them, and they will break through the gate and go out, and their king will pass down before them, the Lord at their head. And I think what, what Jesus is pointing at is looking like saying like, look, like the kingdom is here. Like, and he quotes the Micah, he quotes the old Testament to say, this is what the kingdom was always going to be about. And since John, this is a breaking forth of the kingdom. It is being released as Micah talked about. And, and so he's saying, this is the plan. I haven't come to abolish the law. This is what the law always was pointing to and always was saying. Um, and I think he's driving that home. This is what obedience to the law really looks like. And then he'd start teaching on the law right away, uh, mm-hmm. which is interesting as well. Yeah. So then he moves quickly into it. Just a quick little statement about divorce and remarriage. Um, yeah. I think contextually, I mean, he has talked about poverty and wealth. He has talked about uh, those on the margins already. He's highlighting Samaritans. He's highlighting uh, this shameful son. He's highlighting lost things. He's going to highlight children. He's going to highlight all the things that of our little value and, um, and, and teach on those. And I think here um, in this section, I think he's once again upholding um, the, the law as this is how it's always been like protection of women, which is really like, this was the easy divorce culture uh, at the time. Uh, and women were certainly treated uh, very uh, poorly in a lot of ways. Like Jesus is, is teaching going, look, like the kingdom breaking forth is like making sure that, that the law is not being abolished. So the law is being followed so that there's protection, that there's understanding, like there's, there's women that are um, not kicked to the curb, but that um, marriage is held in honor in such a way that, that, that protects and cares and loves uh, those that could easily end up on the margins. Yeah. I think we'll address some of these things in a lot more detail when we get to the twenties in the book of Leviticus, because it talks about a lot about it. But I do think Jesus is getting to the heart of the law here in Luke, mm-hmm. which is that we are to love God and love others. So we love God through honoring that one flesh union that he designed before the fall. Um, and we show dignity to his image bearers by honoring the commitment and making sure they are provided for. Yep. So uh, there's lots of forms of divorce that reject these commandments and God's design. And that is what God is speaking to here. So yeah. um, we're looking at the heart of the law. We're looking at provision and protection for all people um, and his purpose for marriage. Yep. That's great. The rich man of Lazarus and Lazarus. Uh, sometimes a, a story of that's a little bit of adventures of missing the point. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes we get a little bit caught up on like, okay, so what happens when we die and what's our experience? And right. We want to figure out yeah. the what afterlife. Hades? It's not hell, but it's Hades. So what do I do with that? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, and, and hear me. I, I don't know. <laughs> there's, there's a little bit of confusion. There's definitely some guesses. Um, I don't know if one parable should be made into a full theology of the afterlife. Um, but uh, I think some of the images that are represented there uh, are really interesting because you have the man and, and the beggar at the gate. You have this man of wealth and the beggar at the gate. And like visually they're right. 
on top of each other. Um, that's like almost presented there. Uh, the person of status, wealth, and this beggar who is presented so almost disgustingly that the dogs are licking his wounds. And so like his plight in life is awful. Um, and yet um, we will see kind of the distance, the chasm at the end of the story uh, between the poor man and the one who didn't repent, didn't know, didn't, um, and, and repentance is now sort of off the table for him. Um, and that uh, your position, your wealth, your power, or your, the opposite, your, um, your, your rough lot in life. It's not, a, it's not the determining factor. It, it is um, just because you're wealthy and rich doesn't get you into heaven. And it's not necessarily God's blessing. Yeah. And I think Jesus's other point here is that, you know, we keep thinking we need some more hard evidence. We need a miracle or something like that that is going to make us believe in Jesus. But he's saying you have everything you need. You have Moses. You have the prophets. They're sufficient. We have creation. Yeah. That is sufficient to draw people to repentance. Um, and there is a level of faith that is required no matter what. Yep. So as much as we want this to give us answers on afterlife and all of that, you've got to look at the aim of Luke, why did he write this and why did Jesus say it? And it's not to tell us exactly what the afterlife is yeah. going to be. And then this temptation, the sin uh, kind of section with this millstone, which the Galileans, no millstones, they make it, they've got basalt to, to make it up there. Um, and I think it's um, really teaching about like, look, people are going to take the bait, but, but woe to you if you offer the hook. Um, be, be cautious on how you live in such a way that you might cause somebody else to really stumble that um, you give permission to certain things or um, and, and as kind of first John actually picks up on that there's no cause for stumbling in another like you don't give cause for people to stumble that that you live such a life that you build up your brother and don't cause him to stumble mm -hmm. and there's a direct command and imperative here if your brother sins rebuke him if he repents forgive him so think about yourself are you which one do you err on the side of more or which one do you need to practice a little bit more <laughs> yeah and yeah. It may be the rebuking side in our right. in our culture. Yeah, and and even the the connection between confession and repentance here. It's like sometimes I like to separate them out. Like confession is one thing, but like you really repent is when you stop doing what you were doing. And Jesus mm -hmm. is like, no, like this. We don't get to judge the repentance side. Like you've got to forgive. Like your role is forgiving uh, seven times or whatever. And so, um, yeah, and, and and making sure that that's um, that's clear that that we are. To be in the posture of forgiveness more than anything else doesn't mean we don't rebuke doesn't mean we don't call out sin but that we are the ones or who, put ourselves in positions of continued abuse yeah um and then a story about increasing faith um and, and um yeah, sometimes these kind of texts make me uh, a little uneasy uh, only because i think with the gospel sometimes text where it's like it feels like uh, if i only had more faith and and some some churches will teach this if you just had more faith then this would have happened and like you didn't get what you wanted because you just didn't have enough faith and um I, I don't, that feels non-gospel to me that feels a little bit workspace but um and, and i wonder um and, and sarah you had a, a good perspective on like creation fall uh, related to uh, this idea. Yeah. So I think in some ways it, it may come back to the role of dominion and authority. Adam and Eve were given over um, creation and that they had a form of rule over creation. And we knew that it would serve them well as they um, cared it and kept it, cared for it and kept it. But after the fall, uh, it's not just people who fell, but creation kind of revolted as well. And so there could be a piece here of this understanding of this is how we live outside of the, or within the fall. And that, 
we no longer have the same sort of dominion and authority over creation that we did before the fall. Yeah. And, and maybe the, the seed here, um, which we've even seen seeds tied into the kingdom, maybe it's about kingdom faith which is really faith in the right object, like the, the object of the king um, that we put our faith in Jesus. And Jesus is, is the one who really um, allows us now to have dominion over all things. Um, not in a way that we literally can do this, but in a way that figuratively understands power and dominion. Mm-hmm. And then unworthy servants, um, which uh, I tend to read, I think, a little bit more harshly than Sarah. But um, uh, it sort of feels like sometimes to me, it's like, okay, like, yes, have faith and go do your job. Uh, Jesus is is the master of the house that we come into and not you. You, you are not the center of the attention here. Um, and... Um, and for us to, to go and that, um, but I think it's, it's clear in the text that, that we don't serve for Jesus's thanks. Uh, we serve to thank Jesus mm-hmm. that he has welcomed us into his house. And so, yeah. And be um, careful about your own sense of entitlement. You know, Jesus is not so much your homeboy as he is the God of the universe. Right. And we serve them because he has, he has saved us from everything and delivered us from the wrath to come. That said, when we read it in, the larger picture of scripture we right. see in Romans 8 that we are sons and we are heirs. Yeah. Uh, we're called friends in the book of John. So we are not only servants, but we need to approach him as servants and understand our role in his kingdom. And then we come across 10 lepers and um, there's a connection to being on the border of Samaria kind of here. And then at least one of those was a Samaritan. And so um, there's sort of this picture of, um, cleansing coming to even the Samaritans um, and into these lepers. And it's a peculiar story because Jesus kind of tells these Samaritan and lepers, the, 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 the two descriptors of these people to go to the priest, which uh, without being healed necessarily yet. And so, uh, but they do. And one of them's healed, but one of them seems to acknowledge Jesus in the process. And um, I, I think, I think that that's part of the story that matters that sure God's, God's graciousness, his common grace and the way that his kingdom works may provide healing and restoration for more than just his people. But, but there is a recognition of who Jesus is that is um, to be noted by Jesus, the, the faith that, and he, and Jesus points out the man's faith. And so um, I think it's pointing even out the uniqueness and, and, and sort of the, the recognition of, of Jesus as the one who has brought these things when the other nine are not heard of again. Yeah. Our response to God's mercy is an indicator of who we understand God to be. Yep. Psalm 124. It's a song of ascents. So traditionally, these psalms were sung or prayed when people were heading to Jerusalem for festivals, or some people believe it was when they were heading into the temple. Yeah, or uh, even the priests. There's some thought that the priest, there's 15 steps in the temple and that all 15 were used for the 15. It's all sorts of interesting theories, but the road to Jerusalem seems to be the most yes. common. <laughs> and they and they are intended to be reflective songs as you go into worship. Yep. Um, and this one's reflective. Yeah. Certainly. All glory to God for him delivering his people. Yeah. With a lot of language that will sound like the Exodus story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's on 72. Yeah. So this is a messianic psalm. Again, as a reminder, a messianic psalm is one that points us to Jesus. So Jesus did all these things perfectly. He cared for the needy and he has given us a kingdom of righteousness. Yep. That's great. Um, so next week, what, is, what should we look forward to, Sarah? 
Uh, so I think it's kind of fun to pay attention to Jethro and his role. Uh, try to look back and remember who Jethro is if you don't know and see what he does. He's a, he's a pretty good guy. Uh, and in the New Testament, this is kind of Old Testament too, pay attention to what Zacchaeus does as he repents and to repay and see if you can find that anywhere in the laws that you read about in Exodus. Yeah, and to me... Um in Exodus 20, when we get the law, God calls us people like the special treasure, the kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Those are huge descriptors that even uh, the New Testament will pick up on. And yeah. so what do those represent? What, what does it mean to be a kingdom of priests? What do priests do? What is what is the definition of a priest and um, or a holy nation? What does it mean to be this set apart nation? What is the symbolism and tied, tied into that? And then in the, in the New Testament, Luke continues to have such a range of people that he is that Jesus is interacting mm-hmm. with or Jesus uses as storytelling. Um, think through like what do they represent? What kind of people are they? Um, and how might a first century person see these different people uh, from all these different perspectives? So that's it. We got another long one, uh, but um, we're probably gonna have to deal with that through Exodus, but we'll we'll keep trudging through. And um, thanks. Thanks everybody. Thanks.